We are uh, studying the book of Revelation, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. As you all know, uh, you're most welcome to use the chat box or to unmute yourself and ask questions. During the session, you can answer, you can give your answers uh, the way you prefer to do. Uh, at the end of the session, we'll have little time of Q&A session. We are into uh, Revelation chapter 7, 11, uh, sounding the seven trumpets. We have already completed the sixth, six trumpets, and we are in between the sixth and seventh trumpets, and we are trying to understand the significance of the vision uh, that John had. And last uh, week, last Wednesday, we were trying to figure out who are those two witnesses. We saw several possibilities and we came to the conclusion or we said that most of the commentators say that the two witnesses, they represent the church. This is how we finished last uh, Wednesday. The most common view is that the two witnesses represent the prophetic witness of the church. Uh, again, we can uh, you know, debate whether it is church or not, we can debate, but this seems to be the best available options. Uh, we don't say this is the only thing. We saw that Enoch, we saw Elijah, we saw Moses. We saw even people talk about Paul and Peter. So there are many options. After seeing all those options, we, we can safely conclude that the two witnesses, that they represent the prophetic uh, witness of the church. Uh, the witnesses are authorized to prophesy. Prophesy, when we hear the word prophesy, it is not forthtelling. Uh, uh, it is basically speaking the word of God. Uh, they are supposed to speak God's message, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they need to speak on God's behalf. The same way the uh, Israel's Old Testament prophets did, thus said the Lord, and they give the message. So it's on behalf of God, in the spirit of God, when we share the word of God. That's what this represents. Incidentally, the two witnesses, they were wearing sackcloth, and we said that, you know, it represents mourning or repentance, uh, they're asking for repentance of the people. Interesting. This chapter is interesting with its own contrast uh, because when they're asking people to repent, uh, they're so angry at the witnesses. Ultimately, they kill them. And after seeing their dead bodies, they enjoy uh, the death of these two witnesses. So that's what we are going to see uh, today. In other words, the chapter clearly says people are not ready to hear the truth. 
they are rather ready to hear unpleasant truth. In other words, they are ready. To, uh, they are not. Uh, they are not ready to hear because truth always hurts, and they are not ready. They want to hear something that is pleasing to them. Uh, so that is the way the world moves. So with that as uh, the, as our background information, we'll go to verse seven. We finished uh, up to verse six. So we go to verse seven. Now, when they have finished their testimony, beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Now, how do we know that the two witnesses have finished their testimony? It's interesting because the verse says, now when they have finished their testimony, how do we know that the two witnesses have finished their testimony? Is there any clue to say that they finished their testimony or on what basis we say that they have finished their testimony? Anyone would like to guess the answer? Okay, the Jewish texts uh, normally talked about the end of the age. And if you read their texts, they'll always talk about your long uh, battle. And uh, they'll always say that uh, God's people will suffer, but ultimately they will triumph. Now, how do we know the two witnesses have finished their testimony is God is sovereign. And for the beast that comes up from the abyss, it is again, it's all under the sovereign power of God. So it is God allows it to happen. We, we will not know uh, why God allows, we will not know all those, uh, we will not get answers to those questions. But God gives this witnesses certain time. In other words, God gives his churches also a certain time. And, at the, you know, we always say at the right time, God will do everything beautiful. So in his plan, it is his plan that he is going to bring about his kingdom. The kingdom of God is already at hand. We should never forget that kingdom will come. That's why we speak about the second coming. And according to God's plan, it will come. So this all fits into God's plan, and it's God's plan of allowing them uh, for the beast to come up from the abyss. Now, it comes from abyss, basically a bottomless pit. How do you explain a bottomless pit? It is pit, it's a bottomless pit. So abyss is supposed to be a bottomless pit, and a beast comes up from the abyss. Now, this is the first of the 36 references in Revelation to the beast. There are, we will see 35 references more. 
So this is the first of the 36 references that we find in the book of uh, Revelation. Now, the, the demonic monster uh, will be described in detail uh, in chapters 13 and 17 as we go uh, forward, um, as we move, we will see uh, the description of this beast in chapters 13 and 17. Now, the beast which uh, comes up from the abyss will uh, overpower and kill them. The beast, because uh, it will kill those two witnesses. Uh, Christian warriors are martyrs. Uh, when you're talking about a worldly war, it is, you know, who is the victor? Yes, put the other party. So many people were killed. So many soldiers were captured. But in the, in the case of a holy war, it is all about uh, the Christian warriors are martyrs. The true warriors are martyrs. Because um, in Revelation uh, 7, 13, 14, we already saw that one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, now, if the Christians have been asked to attack, it is very easy because it is the base instinct of fallen human being uh, to attack, to kill. But the Spirit of God enables us to withstand this attack and even to die as martyr. Uh, Recently, I was just reading about a Romanian pastor uh, who was imprisoned and he was tortured for his uh, belief, belief in Christ. He was tortured so badly. They, 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 this goes on for days and hours. He felt so humiliated. One day he was in his cell he was so humiliated and he asked, oh God, what's happening to me? And he says, he heard the voice of Jesus and he said, uh, Jesus said, do you want to know me more? He said, yes, I want to know you more. If you want to know me more, would you not partake in my suffering? He said, Lord, forgive me. I'm ready to partake in your sufferings and uh, I want to know you more. So the next day again, he was called to the torture chamber and the man came, the usual man who used to torture him. The moment he entered the room, he said, I'm very sorry, sir, because I have harbored uh, hatred towards you. I have all wrong thoughts about you. Please forgive me. Last night, my Lord Jesus appeared to me and he said, you are the instrument through whom you will, Jesus will reveal himself more and more. And he says, the man 
mumbled something and he just left him alone and he said he never came back to torture him again but that is the story true story of a romanian pastor suffering is part of christian life <clears throat> many time we get to hear messages you will be victorious we will be victorious but not the way we expect <clears throat> not the way we think there will be no problems there will be no difficulties that's not the way the bible tells us in the end we will be victorious in and through all these problems because god is with us now remember these battles are taking place in several uh, levels if it, if it's if it's taking place in the spiritual realm in the heavens satan has no say in heaven he just loses without dispute if the battle is taking place in heaven uh, satan has no place he will just lose because in revelation 12 7 to 8 it says then war broke out in heaven michael and his angels fought against the dragon and that dragon and his angels fought back but he was not strong enough <clears throat> and they lost their place in heaven so in that party in the realm of heavens uh, they the devils the devil the dragon has no say he just loses this battle now as i said in the in the first coming of jesus jesus said the kingdom of god is has already come but it has already come but not yet come that's the, that's the phase in which we are living with this is what we call as eschatological there is going to be a final war after that there will be no evil evil will be finished once for all that is the eschatological war now in the eschatological war jesus will destroy his challengers he will destroy his challengers because in revelation 17:14 it says they will wage war against the lamb but the lamb will triumph over them because he is lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers those who follow him faithfully they will be with the lamb there's no doubt about there's no doubt about it but in the meanwhile the the beast has been given power to overpower or to conquer the saints the beast has been given power he doesn't have power on his own but he has been given power uh from the human perspective we might think we are losing but in god's perspective it is all leading towards it's all leading in a certain direction that ultimately god will uh, triumph so the saints overcome the world by accepting martyrdom without compromise this is the only way we overcome the world we overcome the world by accepting martyrdom without compromise so the witnesses are protected for the duration of their ministry the church is here today for its ministry but at the end we will see the church itself will be in trouble
the witnesses will die the witnesses will die at the end <clears throat> now god is preserving his church throughout the age for the sake of their witnesses the church is being preserved right now for the sake of witnesses but then the end will once the universal proclamation of the gospel is fulfilled uh, we cannot sit with a paper and say that you know th this has been done because whenever god feels feels that in his the way god, god knows is a god of justice when he knows that not the way we think or oh, so many people are still unreached and all yeah it's true it's unreached from the human perspective but when god feels that the gospel has been proclaimed sufficiently in this world then the end will come and the second coming of jesus christ will take place uh, now when john wrote this the readers or the believers they probably expected these events in the roman empire because when we read, when we saw those seven letters we saw how the roman empire was uh, persecuting them so they expected their idea when they read the letter it's all pointing towards the roman empire because it's god's word today when we see when we read we see regimes in this world they are out and out against christians to destroy christians so that is why god's word is always relevant to us and it will continue till his second coming till that final battle uh, is fought so when we read what we see is not something strange god has already predicted christians will be persecuted we will be in struggle but uh, we will be having problems we'll be persecuted but in the end the lamb will triumph so with that we go to the next verse revelation 11:8 it says their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city which is figuratively called sodom and egypt where also their lord was crucified to which place does sodom and egypt refer to to which place jerusalem yeah jerusalem okay to which place okay jerusalem because where the lord was crucified because the answer is given there i think yeah the answer is given and that is where we struggle because figuratively called sodom and egypt where also their lord was crucified now let's try to uh, figure out what this verse means uh, the bodies they lie in the public square of the great city which is figuratively called sodom and egypt where also their lord was crucified we have no problem knowing that lord was crucified in jerusalem uh, sodom basically uh, symbolizes moral degradation because it is there right in uh, in the book of genesis and egypt stands for oppression and slavery uh, and these two witnesses 
uh, is the martyrdom of these two witnesses is likened to that of Christ in Jerusalem. Now, the Old Testament prophets often compared Jerusalem or Israel with Sodom. Uh, it is there. Uh, Sodom was a prophetic title for Jerusalem that implied its judgment. Right in the book of Isaiah, it says, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah also says the same thing. And among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that not one of them turns from their wickedness. They're all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. So Jerusalem or Israel uh, being uh, referred to like Sodom is not something new. It was happening. Uh, it is there in the Old Testament. Uh, but when we read this verse, 11.8, uh, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. Now, we have already seen, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. We have no problem. Where also their Lord was crucified, we, are, we have no problem. Now, there is something uh, John adds of the great city. Now, which is that great city? Now, we, we should be, when we are reading this apocalyptic literature, we should be aware that uh, John sometimes deliberately uh, appears polyvalent. In, fa in fact, he has different meanings. Or he, when he says this, he, has, he gives the symbols different functions. In other words, the same image can represent two different uh, things. Now, the great city, the great city may refer to the ungodly world as a whole, the great city, or that is Babylon. Uh, in John's day, uh, it was referred to Rome. Uh, because as we go a uh, little uh, you know, move forward, you will say people from all nations, tribes, language, they all came. So Rome had this kind of international representation so for uh, John's time, it could also refer to Rome. Now, we have already seen in this chapter, the holy city was trampled by pagans during the period of the witnesses' testimony. That's how we began this chapter. Uh, the outer court will be trampled by the pagans. Uh, that's so... The temple was in Jerusalem. So Jesus' witnesses, they suffer. Where Jesus also suffered. So Jerusalem also makes, uh, you know, we can also say this is Jerusalem because we have the great city. The great city also refers to Babylon or to, to the people who are rebellious, who don't want to accept. Uh, Jesus as their savior. 
now let's look at few references of the great city. And then, the, as said, John is uh, quite, uh, is deliberately polyvalent. In other words, the same image represents two things. Now this verse could figure two places. Now that's where we all struggle. Now, if the word, the great city uh, is not here, suppose we, we presume the great city is not here, then it is very easy for us to say this verse refers to Jerusalem. But because of the inclusion of the word great city, uh, great city may be Jerusalem in some sense. Uh, but in, in the book of Revelation, uh, great city explicitly refers to Babylon. When we see other references in the book of uh, Revelation, the great city, it refers to Babylon. I'll give you a few references. Uh, Revelation 17, 18, the, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, in Revelation 18, 10, terrified at a torment, they will stand far off and cry, oh, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. So the, the revelation clearly mentions Babylon as the great city. In Revelation 18.21, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Now, in John's time, the, the Antichrist would have been the world system represented by Rome in John's time. Now, people trying to figure out who is the Antichrist, for, but in John's time, basically the Roman Empire was the Antichrist. But it is not limited to it. Uh, it could also be the unbelieving uh, Jewish people. Now, it could also be the unbelieving Jerusalem because it compromises or it becomes part of the Roman Empire, it easily becomes a part of the system, the corrupt system. Uh, that is why we read in the letters to the churches, the Jewish people, they accused Christians, and they went and complained to the local officials. So that's where we saw that, you know, John refers their synagogues linked with Satan. Uh, if you remember, in chapter 2, in verse, uh, again in chapter 3, we saw, if you want to make a note of it, you go and read uh, chapter 2, verse 9, you go and read chapter 3 and verse 9, where we saw synagogue of Satan, basically referring to the Jewish people who are against Christians. Now, Egypt is also an appropriate title because we know how they oppressed uh, the Israelites and uh, they, how they oppressed basically the God's servants and we know about all the plagues that took place. So Egypt is also an appropriate uh, title. Now Sodom also fits in this place 
because Sodom was destined for destruction by fire. Uh, when we come back, when we come to chapter 20, we will see that fire came down from heaven and devolved them. Uh, it's again something that happened in Sodom. So it is very difficult for us to say whether this is Jerusalem or whether it points to any worldly system that is far, far away from the kingdom of God. Uh, in John's time specifically, uh, we can say that it referred to the Roman Empire. In our time also, we can always try to find out the empire, which empire is against uh, Christ. There, you know, we can talk about communism, we can, we can go and try to do that. But this, it's very difficult to say it's, it's only Jerusalem. In other words, any power which is against the kingdom power, we can come to that conclusion. It refers to any power which is against the kingdom power. Now, <clears throat> we go to Revelation 11, 9. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them uh, burial. Now, uh, this is where we said it refers, it could refer to Rome because Rome had an international representation because it says every people, tribe, language, and nation. It could also be Jerusalem. Uh, at that time, uh, it could also be Rome. Now, for uh, now, they they will gaze for three and a half days. All these people will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Now, to deny proper burial was considered as a disgrace and insult to the dead. That's the reason, you know, in every culture, uh, people take a lot of pain and they, are, they give importance to bury a person properly because when we don't do that, it's a, it's a disgrace and insult to the dead. And here, the dead bodies, the witnesses, they're lying in the street indicates, they're lying in the street means, that, that means nobody has bothered to bury them. So this is considered as the most shameful treatment in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, there was a habit like this, or there was a practice like this, which was reserved for the worst of criminals. They don't care for their dead bodies. They just lie in the open space. Uh, that was that was one of the reasons we find in Deuteronomy a law. Uh, God gave a law to the Israelites because God told the Israelites, "You don't engage in this kind of practice. People around you they leave a dead body like this to decompose, but you don't. It is not permitted for you. You are not allowed." to leave a dead body like this. Uh, so this, this may not be Jerusalem because the Jewish people were specifically commanded not to refuse them 
burial, not to leave the dead bodies in the open. Jewish people, it is not only for Jewish people, for anyone in your place. When there is a dead body, don't leave it. Uh, that's why when Judah, uh, Judas, when he gave, uh, when he went and threw those 30 silver coins, uh, the priest will go and buy a potter's land to bury the foreigners, aliens uh, living in that place. Because the Jewish people were not permitted to allow a dead body to rot like this. Uh, that comes from the Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body. You must not. It is not. You should try. You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day. Because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So that's the reason why we say that in Revelation 11, 8, uh, 11, 8, it may not be Jerusalem because they have been specifically commanded not to leave a dead body lying in the streets. Now, what is the significance of three and a half days? For three and a half days, some uh, their dead bodies were lying in the streets. So what is the significance of three and a half days? Is there any significance? If there is a significance, what does it represent? Corresponding to the three and a half, three and a half years, uh, yes, Pastor. Three and a half years of ministry. Yes. What else? Yes, you're right. What else? The three and a half days have been mentioned probably to signify that the dead bodies of the two witnesses were decomposing. We remember that uh, Jesus, uh, when Lazarus died, he came on the fourth day. Uh, so here, three and a half days, basically, their dead bodies, uh, the dead bodies of the two witnesses were decomposing. Or, as Pastor said, it may simply correspond to the three and a half years of their ministry. The two witnesses, they they ministered in that place for three and a half years, so three and a half days may correspond to their ministry. Uh, now, this was probably says that, you know, the death cannot silence the church witnesses. As we go further down, we'll see that death cannot stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Uh, in the process, many will die. Martyrdom is part of the kingdom of God's plan, uh, but they cannot stop the church. They cannot stop because Jesus said in Matthew's, uh, Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. 
now, the, the witnesses were given three and a half years, or the church was given that length of time, because we have already seen that uh, 42 months is not literal, it is symbolic. We saw it's a church era. Uh, so in this church era, uh, people will die for Christ. Uh, Jesus has never said you will be uh, protected or you will be exempted uh, from martyrdom. Jesus, Jesus never said. But they cannot destroy church. Church will stand because Jesus said, I will build my church and all the demons from abyss will not be able to overcome it because that is the promise. Jesus has given us. Now, the problem, I said, when we take it as Jerusalem, uh, because we see here some from every people, tribe, language, and nation. So we see a kind of international representation, every people, tribe, language, and nation. So because where the Christ, because the Christ died there, um, where also their Lord was crucified, so it's easier for us to accept it as Jerusalem. But now when we come to this verse, uh, this allegory, it, it just develops uh, as though it includes every tribe, every people, tribe, language, and nation. That's the way the apocalyptic literature has been written. And it'll be very difficult for us to pinpoint this is what it means. Um, now, some interpreters, uh, they view this city as a symbol of the world. Uh, this city, that great city, just represents the world rather than Jerusalem in particular. Uh, we cannot keep waiting in Jerusalem. This incident is going to take place in Jerusalem. Uh, that kind of uh, Understanding is not there in this in this uh, in this book. So some interpreters they say the city Jerusalem is just a symbol of the world, because that's why we see every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them a burial. Uh, another interpreter says because the Rome boasted a large uh, international population at that time. So it represented uh, Rome. So we'll not be able to specify, but all that we can see is there is a war that is going on between the world and the kingdom of God. That's happening side by side, that's happening. So we go to the next verse, uh, that's the 10th verse. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. Uh, you know, we hear, even in this world, they say you know, Christians are a nuisance. Uh, we should get rid of them. This world will be better if we get rid of them. Uh, I don't know if you have not heard it. It is there. If you listen to uh, many reports, that's what they say. These people are a nuisance. They will never allow us to progress so long as they are there. So it is better just eliminate them. So many Christians have died in regimes like this. 
and the inhabitants of the the inhabitants of the earth they will celebrate there is a paradox in this place um, because as children of god we will not compromise with the worldly system the world will ask us to compromise in several places and as children of god we will say we will not do it so because we tell them that this is not right they feel offended uh, they feel very bad so when when the witnesses of christ are eliminated they in fact they rejoice uh, there is there is a this is deeply ironic when we read the old testament in the old testament we read stories where god's servants they escaped genocide god protected them god rescued them from genocide because god protected them uh, and their enemies were killed uh, what they did is they celebrated that victory whether any incident comes to your mind from the old testament we have a very famous incident in the book of esther uh, 919 the book of esther it says that is why rural jews those living in villages observe the 14th of the month of adar as a day of joy and feasting a day for giving presents to each other we know the story the enemies of jewish people were eliminated were killed and so the jewish people were celebrating this by giving presents to each other but here god's children are being killed and so their enemies are celebrating by sending each other gifts that's why i said uh there is a, it's quite ironic in this place uh so here in in the book of esther it is god's servants god's children who exchange gifts uh, after killing their enemies uh but here it is god's people who are being killed and their enemies are celebrating it by sending each other gifts but the one interesting thing in this chapter is because of this many people will be converted many people will come to the saving knowledge of jesus uh, in this holy war uh, at the at the end god will be the victor there's no doubt about it uh, that's what we see in revelation 11:11 but after the three and a half days the breath of life from god entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them the breath of life from god entered them we have also seen in the book of ezekiel the dry bones coming to life and we also see in the book of genesis christians will die christians will die it'll it'll be it'll be very naive for us to say that you stand for christ god will protect you you will not die that will be a very uh, that's a very naive statement uh, at least that's not there in the bible in the bible it says you will die for my name you will die uh, but 
in the end, you will be resurrected. Uh, the breath of life we have seen in Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Uh, it's very interesting in the book of Revelation, when we see the breath of life, uh, there is also a false kind of life that is being imparted. Uh, because when we come to Revelation chapter 13, 15, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Uh, that's there. Uh, but as God's children, we should always remember about our resurrection. Uh, we will die. We will die. Even if there is no persecution, still we will die in this world. This world is not permanent. Uh, I like the way the Dr. Martin Lloyd, uh, Lloyd Jones says, he was a medical doctor, a brilliant doctor at a very young age. He gave up his medical practice and became a pastor, pastor of a church. And he says that the first breath of the child could be the last breath. What basically is telling is, every breath that we take can be the last breath. So in this world, whether there's persecution or no persecution, uh, our breath will come to an end one day. So, uh, but as children of God, we will be resurrected. So we go to the next verse. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. The people were mocking them, were celebrating. As they were looking, they were caught up to heaven. God intervenes in our lives. Even in this world, as I told you about that pastor who was persecuted, Romanian pastor, God intervenes at the right time. As we go through the darkest time in our life, God intervenes. He intervenes. He is a God who is always with us. He will walk with us along, and He will carry us through the darkest valleys. So he gives his servants resurrection life. Not only gives them resurrection life, he calls them up to heaven. Uh, we know Elijah ascended to heaven. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. In the same way, the church believers will also ascend. We need to have that faith, the church believers. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15, 16, it says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. That is the assurance we have. So we go to the next verse, the 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and the tenth of the city collapsed, 
7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, again, this is quite ironical in the sense uh, when we read the uh, prophetic books in the Old Testament, we always find the one-tenth remained as a remnant. But here it talks about a one-tenth uh, being killed. Uh, we don't have to get into the exact number, one-tenth being killed. A tenth of the city collapsed. But in, in the Old Testament, in the prophetic books, we always find the remnant. One-tenth of the city will remain, or one-tenth of the population remained as the remnant of God. Uh, because in Isaiah 6.13, it says, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Uh, in Amos uh, 5.3, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel, your city that marches out a thousand strong, will have only a hundred left. Only a tenth is left here because a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. You, um, your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only 10 left. Your town that marches out hundred. So it's one tenth, uh, a tenth. So basically uh, here only a tenth is left as remnant, but here a tenth is being destroyed, but the rest will come uh, to the saving knowledge of God. It's interesting. Uh, it is the suffering of this one-tenth uh, which will bring about repentance in the rest of the population. Um, and those who survive, they give glory to God because Revelation 11:13 says the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's why Tertullian in the first century itself, he said, how often the blood of martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Uh, their lives will not go in vain. People who die for Christ, their lives will not go in vain. Uh, it'll never be in vain. So basically, the, what this chapter says is the church is here to undergo suffering. Uh, we don't like to hear this message. So when people say that you'll be caught up in heaven, you will be protected, uh, God has his own way of protection, even in this world, you yeah, know, he, he walks with his children, he protects, he guards them. But there's no way the Bible says that we will be free from struggles, we'll be free from trouble, uh, persecution, trials, tribulation. Nowhere the Bible says. Uh, but in the, when the chapter began, uh, Revelation chapter 11, the inner court was not attacked. It is only the outer court will be trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. In other words, the temple cannot be touched. Uh, the word they use is nawos, which is an altar. So the holy place, the innermost place will not be touched. 
you and I are the body of Christ, even if they kill, that inner place cannot be touched. Where Christ dwells with us, that place cannot be touched. And uh, so we should not read this chapter uh, as though it's going to be some historical events. Now we saw in this chapter the violent death, it was not an ordinary death, the violent death of the two witnesses. And we also saw their resurrection after three and a half days and their ascension into heaven. We should not think that this will take place uh, as historical events on so-and-so day and on 25th of October, 2020, they were killed. And on 28th of October, they were just caught up in heaven. This is not to be seen as historical events, uh, but these are all symbolic, symbolic of the resurrection of the church. Church is, is the most powerful thing in this world after heaven. And God, the church belongs to God, not to a pastor, not to a denomination. The church belongs to God. Uh, though sometimes we feel the church is losing its battle, it's not losing its battle. The church will always continue to live. So this chapter ends with the next verse. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. We are waiting for the seventh trumpet. So the second woe has passed. The third woe is coming uh, soon. Now, this chapter gives a, some kind of pattern or model for the church because we are all his witnesses. Because in Revelation 19.10 says, at this I felt at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Uh, we are called to be his witnesses. Even in the time of hardship, uh, God never said he will uh, insulate his church from hardship because right in chapter one, uh, this is the way John introduces himself. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was in the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, when we are called to suffer, for our Christian witness, uh, we should identify with these two witnesses. Uh, we should identify because like our Lord Jesus Christ, because the verse clearly say where our Lord uh, was crucified, where also their Lord was crucified. We should be able to identify ourselves with our Lord Jesus as well as with these two witnesses. Uh, the trampling of the outer courts, uh, it probably signifies the suffering of God's people. Uh, it could be Jewish people, it could be Christian people, but it, it points to the suffering of God's people. Uh, many a time, those who serve God may be in a minority, and most of the time, they'll be in a, they're often they'll be a persecuted minority. Uh, this is not something new. It is, uh, we are familiar with it, and we also hear reports from all around the world how the minority Christians are being persecuted. Uh, but the future is ultimately ours. 
<clears throat> God often works through what is small, broken, and despised in this age. <clears throat> He's not looking for extraordinarily gifted people, talented people. He is looking for humble, ordinary, willing people who are very small, broken. You know, others may think what good will come out of him, but God works in and through weak people. <clears throat> so these two witnesses, they give a direct model for the church. <clears throat> now, if you want to uh, recognize them as two individuals, that's also fine. Because those two individuals represent you and me. Because Jesus, Jesus has given us the Great Commission. So these two individuals, they, represents, they represent you and me. Quite often when we read about suffering, persecution, we think somebody else will be suffered. Uh, but that's not the way the word of God says. We don't know who has to suffer, who will be, who will not undergo suffering. We don't know. But as and when we have to undergo, we need to take comfort from this passage, comfort from this uh, chapter. Uh, because uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. It has already begun with the coming of Jesus Christ. The culmination of the ages has already begun and it will continue. So we are in that age between the first coming and the second coming. We are waiting for the culmination. So we are those two witnesses. The, the church is those two witnesses. So we, we you know, not by might, not by power, but by the spirit. So we must be the spirit-empowered witnesses to the world, uh, ready to pay any cost. They will not give us job, they will not give us promotion, uh, they will discriminate, but we should be ready to pay any cost because we should be utterly dependent on God's power to accomplish his purposes. And his purposes are always good and the best for us. So I've uh, completed um, up to 14 verses, uh, chapter 11, 14 verses. From 15 onwards, we'll see uh, next week. If you have any questions, you can ask. Thirteen. What does seven thousand people who are killed in the earthquake? How do we understand? You know, the seven thousand. You can take it as leaders of the church, or it could just refer to symbolically seven thousand people. Uh, the idea is not in the numbers. Uh, how they were killed and all. The idea is, it is the few people who died, uh, they will be the instruments for a larger people to come to that saving knowledge. Because we saw in the Old Testament, it is one-tenth which remained as a remnant. But in this age, 
in this eschatological age, uh, it is the few will die, and because of the few, many more will come to the kingdom of God. So the number is symbolic. Okay, if there are no more questions, then uh, there's one more question, Pastor. No problem. Okay. Okay, we'll all read this as a closing prayer. Revelation chapter 7, verse 12. Amen. Amen. Praise and wisdom and praise power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Glorious Father, we bow before you. You are seated on the throne. That gives us assurance. That gives us confidence. We will always trust in you, O oh God, in the midst of our trials, tribulations. O oh God, you have ordained a path for each one of us. We'll be able to walk that path with your strength with your grace, with your wisdom. Bless each and every one who is, uh, who is here today, O oh Lord. Minister to them. You be their God. You be their provider. You be their protector. You be their healer. And bless them with your presence. Give us a heart that will hunger for you, Lord. We want to thirst and hunger for you, Lord Jesus not for the worldly things, we'll always keep our eyes fixed on you. Take us in a way where we will learn to enjoy you in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our disappointments. We want you. Bless each and every one, O oh Lord. Be with them through the rest of the week. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ unfailing love of our Heavenly Father and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit remain with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.